Salutations, my illustrious and exquisite darlings. As we embark upon a brand new week of peculiar narratives, I bring to you a vocabularic motif. During one of my streams last week, an amazing member of the Incredible Chat proposed the question of why, if a flowering flora is called a plant and a forging foundry is called a plant, isn't a farm called a plant plant? And also, how did the two meanings diverge so drastically? The question got me thinking about some of the truly intriguing and honestly fun stories that trace the journey of words, as well as some words that are just on their own and in their own meanings, simply strange or beautiful. That said, I am elated to be the bearer of lexiconic cheer as we dive this week into wordplay. As always, I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. Hey, Dorothy, you're not Kansas anymore. Just let that yellow brick road lead you to my door. As we embark, I have to take a quick moment to share that it's happened. We have swag in the shop. I'll share a bit more in the closing of the episode, but I couldn't keep it to myself for that long. And now, beanies, totes, tees, and even a color-changing mug with a crow on it is up on the site, and I am so, so, maybe unreasonably excited about it. Check it out if you'd like at fantasticallystrange.com slash shop. But without further ado, let's jump in. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't start from a place of plants. After all, it was the question that really kicked off the theme. I looked to an amazing online resource that I would highly suggest for the curious, which, if I were to be so bold, I feel like is all of us. The Online Etymology Dictionary at edemonline.com, which, of course, I'll link in the show notes. And I discovered some interesting things. The, well, root of the word, the Old English plant, with an E on the end, meaning, quote, young tree or shrub, herb, newly planted, a shoot or strip recently sprouted from the seed, comes from the Latin word of planta, meaning, quote, sprout, shoot, or cutting. We see this reflected in other languages as well, such as French and Spanish, with plante and planta, respectively. In time, say around the 1550s, the meaning of the word extended from a baby vegetation to encompass, well, really any vegetation that wasn't an animal, or, as we learned in the last episode, a mushroom. From this point, other uses came from the verb version of the word to plant, meaning either to have something that grows into something, or to set to grow underground. You'll see what I mean for that second part here in a second. For the first meaning, that is where the idea of a plant in terms of a nuclear plant or something like that comes in. The meaning being, again from Etymology Online, quote, construction for an industrial process, and 
This was a meaning first seen attached to the word plant in 1789 in the book <clears throat> Observations and Reflections Made in the Course of a Journey Through France, Italy, and Germany. A journey that was hopefully more insightful than the creation of the book's title. <clears throat> as far as seeing what I mean by the non-greenery meaning of the word with the second idea that I had mentioned, setting something to grow underground, we see that idea take shape in another, later usage of the word, a third idea that had not come up in chat, and one that had managed to slip by my very mind. And this would be the slang version for spy, a plant, as seen for the first time used in 1812. All of this really makes a lot of sense, and I think in some ways we could have logicked our way there. Planting something being to grow, an industrial plant being a place where things are built, i.e. quasi-grown by the assembly process, it all tracks. My question then became, what about the word farm? Where did that come from? Searching the etymology for farm, I was actually really surprised at the journey of this one. While based on the original question and the serious lack of wordplay opportunity by not having corn raised on a plant plant and the etymology therein, I assumed farm would have something to do with the process of growth, plants, animals, agriculture, or something along those lines. How wrong I was. It's not the first time. First appearing around 1300 or so, the origin comes from the old French ferme, from the 13c medieval Latin firma, or, quote, fixed payment. Yes, that's right. Farm originates from the meaning fixed payment or rent. And, honestly, once I started thinking about it, it made a lot of sense. People held their family's financial value in property, land, as early as 14c, there was the meaning attached of a tract of leased land, and in the 1520s, the idea combined that the land would have been cultivated in some form or another. According to the Century Dictionary, it seems this idea of a farm being only agricultural in nature, that's actually a pretty modern idea. In fact, the verb version of to farm originally meant to rent land, specifically, and only came to mean anything agricultural in 1719 onward. It's really interesting to me how some words have so drastically changed, diverged, and stayed the same. Even more so, I love how the shifting in meanings and understandings of these words reveal so much about what matters to us as people as time goes on. For what it's worth, the verb of to farm, meaning something agriculturally related, occurred in 1719, the early 1700s, and the noun plant, first appearing in an industrial way, occurred in 1789, the late 1700s. While, as an aside, the Industrial Revolution began in 1760, right smack between. That would definitely have been a big shift in values, perceptions, and beyond that, I think would have affected how people regarded words and their meanings, especially when it came to how closely 
those words linked to the changing times. Did the Industrial Revolution impact the meanings of plant and farm? I'm not a word scholar, so I can't say for sure, but it's definitely a seed to think on. story I have for you is one of my favorite odd facts that I love to share unprompted with unsuspecting bystanders. And I am so thrilled I finally have a reason to share it with you here. Back in episode three, Ain't Got No Body, we met Edverard Digby, a man who was convicted for his role in the gunpowder plot of 1605 and ultimately put to death. For this story, we return to that fateful series of events and look at another, and probably the best-known conspirator, of said scheme. Just to set the historical scene, and because it's important to understand, England in the mid-1500s had become a very unfriendly place to Catholics after the split of the church. The current monarch, Queen Elizabeth, was getting on in years, and, as she had no heir, various powers began to maneuver. One of these was James VI of Scotland. He had a strong natural claim through his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, and had been given an annual pension from the Queen. However, he was never named an official heir, and it rubbed him a little the wrong way. Seeing his impending opportunity drawing nearer, he started to make friends with all of the right people to build up his support, which included informally, of course, various Catholic heads. Now, James was known to be tolerant and, quote, broad-minded, and had written in a letter that, quote, blood should never be shed over differences of religious opinion. Plus, his wife, Queen Anne of Denmark, was also Catholic. He additionally said that Catholics that followed the law would not be persecuted, and so forth. However, it was still recorded that he was not super interested in the Catholic numbers of England increasing in the event that they would, another quote, practice their old principles on us. All in all, many were hopeful that there were brighter days ahead for the English Catholics if he were to take over. Once Queen Elizabeth passed away, James was indeed crowned the new King of England. And it wasn't long before he was approached by various Catholics to sign petitions agreeing to tolerate Catholicism on a more official capacity, all of which he refused to sign, but he did say he would suspend the monthly fines that had been placed, so long as the Catholic community agreed to support the king. There was concern, and within the year, there were two smaller plots to force the king into official toleration, the by and main plots, both of which failed. Then, plans began for the gunpowder plot. The premise was to tunnel into the cellars beneath Parliament, then blow it up with barrels of gunpowder that had been ferried across the Thames. Led by Robert Catesby, the son of a wealthy Catholic family, the circle included Francis Tresham, Jack and Kit Wright, Thomas Percy, Robert and Thomas Winter, 
and Guido, or Guy Fawkes. In the beginning phases, and before the plan had really taken any form of action, there had been initially some hope that there would be help from a foreign power such as Spain. However, as time went on, it seemed that wouldn't happen, and the monthly fines were reinstituted despite James's promise. No! So, the men felt that the time for action had come, and that action fell upon their shoulders. As steps were carefully plotted, an unexpected opportunity fell into place when a street-level chamber, situated between their working tunnel and the House of Lords meeting place, was open to rent. An opportunity that the men jumped on. The date of the plot's fruition drew nearer, and all pieces neatly fitting together, when there was a dinner between four of the leading lords of the Privy Council. A letter was brought in, delivered by one, Lord Monteagle, that read, essentially, mm, you might not want to be in the Parliament building, oh, I don't know, around this time, something bad might happen to you. Now, Lord Monteagle, a former Catholic, publicly spoke loud and proud about his newfound Protestantism, though his wife was still Catholic, and he was still pretty closely linked to his Catholic circles. Oh, and also, Thomas Winter, one of the inner circle plotters, was his sometime secretary. Now, all of that said, it's not really known who wrote the letter. Some think that Monteagle may have overheard word on the street and written it himself. Either way, the letter made its rounds, eventually rounding all the way up to the king. And while on the night in question, King James was whisked away, every inch of the grounds was searched, and the lighter of the match, Guy Fox, was discovered along with barrels of gunpowder. Fox, as well as the rest of the men involved, along with some that weren't, were all eventually arrested and put to death, save Catesby and three others who died in a shootout. However, that is not where our story so far as the topic of wordplay comes to an end. In order to celebrate the success of averting the near disaster, Parliament instituted Guy Fawkes Day on November 5th, an annual celebration in which friends and family would gather together, fireworks would be set, children would wheel around small figures in wagons and ask for a, quote, penny for the guy, and effigies of Guy Fawkes would be set alight in flame. A fun, question mark, side note, the flavor of the celebration, especially at the time, was notoriously anti-Catholic and was also celebrated across the pond in the colonies. Only here... It was called Pope Day, and celebratory British on, well, both sides of the Atlantic, it would turn out, would burn effigies of, well, the Pope. That is not so much done anymore. Back to the holiday at hand. It wasn't long before the effigies were shortened from Guy Fox effigies to just guys. From there, it was an easy jump to just use the term toward people that others deemed to be low, depraved, or vile. In time, as with many words, various traces of the original connotations fell away, 
And what was left was a catch-all for addressing not only male, but at times, people as a whole, depending on how you look at it and what you're comfortable with. And just as the word itself has undergone a tonal change, so thus has the wider view of Guy Fox shifted from a low-down, depraved villain to an icon of revolution against oppressive powers, even though, historically speaking, perhaps it really should have been Robert Catesby who we all formed such a mythos around, and perhaps to that end, we'd all go around calling each other Bobs. Although somehow, it just doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Of course, if we started now, give it a few hundred years, and it just might. week, I wanted to actually end with something a little different. Words are incredibly powerful. They are how we share our perspectives, our experiences, our stories. They evolve with us, reflecting where we are in time and space, and what matters most to us. So, I wanted to end this episode with some truly mesmerizing words I found that are some of my absolute favorites and I hope that you enjoy and find use for them as well. So without further ado, let's go. The first is yukio, a Japanese word which is a noun meaning to be living in the moment and detached from the bothers of life. Something I definitely strive for and I think a lot of us do in practices of mindfulness and things of that nature. The next is meraki, a Greek word meaning to put something of yourself, your spirit, your soul, your heart, your life, whatever it may be, into your work. I tend to think of it akin to, and perhaps even a step just past being passionate about what it is that you do, when you actually reach the point of imbuing a little of yourself in there. Duende, a Spanish word that is the mysterious power within art to deeply move a person. I think we've all experienced this in Hearing a piece of music, a film, reading something powerful, something that has moved us in a way that only art can. Sonder, the realization that everyone you see, you pass by, you witness, has a life as deep and complex as your own. Yugen, a profound and mysterious sense of the beauty of the universe that triggers a deep emotional response. It's the sort of thing you may experience when you find yourself looking up at the night sky in one of those special places where you can see the stars going on forever 
or perhaps when you watch the twist of a wave dancing in the ocean, or the flight of a bird high above, or maybe even a blade of grass slightly swaying in a breeze. Carencia, a place from which one draws one's strength, where one feels at home and feels one's most authentic self. This can be different, of course, for everyone, but I think it is vital for all of us to be able to figure out where it lies for each of us. And lastly, Warifsteria, which is an old English verb meaning to wander through the forest in search of mystery. I'll post a list of these words and their definitions on the Facebook, Instagram, and on the website, but they are just a few of my favorites, so I hope that you enjoy the sound and meaning they offer and are able to take them as your own. Thank you so much for joining me this week. As I had mentioned earlier, Fantastically Strange Swag is in! And if you want to enjoy some for your very own, and help support the podcast, check out the shop at fantasticallystrange.com shop. Additionally, if you would like to support the show for only a dollar a month while also getting access to the bonus stories, check out patreon.com slash rocketfox. There are other tiers as well if you're interested in other goodies, such as monthly stickers and things like that. I hope that you've enjoyed this bit of wordplay and history we've gone into, and I can't wait to bring you more next week. To visit online, check out fantasticallystrange.com, or give a follow at fantasticallystrange on Instagram or fantasticoddpod on Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a five-star rating, review, or even sharing the podcast with someone you know who may also dig the unusual. It means the world to me to have your ear and to be able to tell stories about topics I'm passionate about. I write, research, edit, produce, and do all of the things myself, and am just so honored to be able to share it with you. If you have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so much again, and I cannot wait to see you next time. Surround.